I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Carrie Egan. She was a hospice chaplain that gave voice to her patients by sharing their personal stories in her book, On Living. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Just want to say thanks so much for taking the time out and talking to me about your book. Well, it's an honor. Thank you. I really mean that. Thank you. Well, it's been really fun getting to know you over the the past few months. So what I love about your book is the humor and how you tell your stories of your patients. I mean, it feels real and authentic. How how did you find the humor while working with the dying? So one of the things I, I, I feel like I hammer this home over and over, but it's, it's so important to me that people realize that... Um, people who are dying are still living, right? That they are not a separate group of people who are different from you and me. They're exactly like any person listening to the podcast right now. They're still living. They're still who they always were. And so people are funny in the middle of life and they continue to be funny, right? They don't change. They don't become unfunny people just because they're dying. They're who they always were. And so if they were funny while they were living, they're going to be funny while they're dying. and and there are lots of funny moments in hospice, right? And, and, I, and I think um, I'm, I'm not the only person who works in hospice who realizes and enjoys and embraces how much joy and humor there can be in this work. I, I mean, I think if you were to talk to any hospice chaplain or nurse or social worker, they're going to have really great funny stories too, because the patients and the families we see are really great, funny people. Um, so it's, it's not hard to find, for me at least, it's not hard to find that joyful and, and humorous strain in people's stories because it's, it's who they are. It's who they've always been. You mentioned earlier that, you know, dying individuals are living, but why name a book on living? Um, well, you know, in, in some ways, it, um, it, it's sort of like the broader answer, which is I very much wanted to talk about um, how people who are dying look back on their experiences of life, right? And and that um, what people told me, the people who said, I really wish I could share this story, um, very much had this idea, and it, I've heard it more than once, that they wish they could let people who are still living know what they've learned the hard way. And so it very much is about living, right? It's not about, about dying. Um, and the sort of the more pedestrian answer is that I, I couldn't, I, I wanted to call the book, um, if I had only known, I would have danced more, which is, um, which is a, a, a line from the book. Um, and then the subtitle was going to be Lessons on Living from the Dying. But that's really long. It's a really mm. long mouthful. You know, if I had right. only known, I would have danced more Lessons on Living from the Dying. And so the more I started to sort of boil it down, I began to realize um, wow, it's really, it's really just about living, right? It's, you know, if you were to break down lessons on living from the dying, well, it really the, the heart of that is on living. What's the book about? It's about living. Tell me this. I mean, you've been writing since you were 30 years old. So how, how do you go from a hospice chaplain 
to now having, you know, two books at Random House, um, speaking about your books, being interviewed with, you know, Terry Gross from NPR, Fresh Air. I mean, what, how is that transition? Um, where, have you always been a writer? I remember when I was in Spain, I walked, I walked the Camino de Santiago and I'm not fluent in Spain, in Spanish. And um, apparently I'm not fluent in English either. Um, <laughs> I'm not fluent in Spanish. And, um, and I remember I was trying to say something and it's very, back then, I don't know what it's like now, this was in the ni- late 90s, but this part of Spain was very rural and very few people spoke English. And I was trying to ask for something or say something and I was having a really hard time. And I remember I said, you know, I'm so sorry. I don't speak Spanish, you know, lo siento, you know, no hablo español. And I remember this very kind man, he grabbed my hands and he said to me in Spanish, he said, slowly, I understand you, don't I? And I said, yes. And he said, then you speak Spanish. And I, it like meant the world to me to have someone say like, you know, I understand you, therefore you speak Spanish. And I sort of feel that way about writing, you know, if, if you write, which we all, we start to write at a very young age, first grade, you know, if you write and someone understands you, then you are a writer. And, and I do think there's a, a, there's a difference between a professional writer and a writer, but um, I don't think there should be that mystery and mystique around, oh, you're a writer. I mean, we're all writers, right? If, if I can right. understand you, you're a writer. Um, I love that. Yeah. I really love that. And so, so to make the jump to sort of professional writer, um, you know, it really happened because <laughs> I was working on my master's thesis and I was in a, a, a chocolate shop in Harvard Square. I went to Harvard Divinity School called Burdick's and it had this incredible hot chocolate and it was like molten pudding. It was like real kind of like Italian European style hot chocolate, like super thick, you know, just steamed milk and chocolate shavings and it was really thick. And I was sitting there. I remember, I remember it so vividly. It was a snowy day in March. And there was this, this woman sitting next to me. And she ordered a hot chocolate. And no big deal. And then, and then she ordered a second. And I remember thinking, huh, it's impressive. But I went back to work. And I'm working on my thesis. And, and then she ordered a third, a third cup of this hot chocolate. And I was like, oh, my God. I've got to meet this woman. Like, I've got to meet this woman and make her my friend. Because this is someone I need to be friends with, and, I, and so I, so I said hi. I said I, you know, I don't know what I said. I struck up a conversation, and um, and it turns out she was the assistant theology editor at Beacon Press at the time. And I said, oh, I go to Divinity School. And she said, oh, what are you working on? And I told her I was working on my master's thesis, which was about the Camino de Santiago. And she said, oh, I'd love to read that when you're done. And so I said, oh, okay, I'll send it to you. So I get her card, and, and I, like, I'm still thinking we're going to be friends, right? So this is in March, so, like, in April, I said... You're still stuck on the hot chocolate. I'm stuck on the hot chocolate. I think she's, like, a really cool <laughs> person. I totally want to be her friend. I remember her name was, like, Tisha or Trisha or something like that. But anyway, um, she um, gives me her card, and, and I, like, send some, like, friendly emails, and she never responds, and I'm like, oh, she's busy. I send her my my thesis when it's done, and, and then I don't hear from her. And, and I went, and I, I went off to New York, and I started work as a, a chaplain intern at, um, at a hospital in New York city. And then I finally heard from her in September. Um, and she sent this email. I finally read your, got to read it. And I really loved it. And I'd like to talk to you. And I'm thinking it's kind of too late. Like I moved to New York. We can't be friends now, you know, like, 
Like it's hard, you know, a long distance friendship is hard enough. We can't start a long distance friendship when we don't even know each other. But, you know, I'm like, well, I'll let her know. I've moved to New York. And, and so I call her up and, um, and I remember my sister was in my apartment with me and, and I'm talking to her and, and I'm explaining, you know, and she's like, oh, I want to come down there and meet you. And I was like, okay, that's weird, but sure. Okay. I guess we can do that. I'm going to take the bus all the way to New York from Boston, but okay. And, um, and she was like, and then the next step is I would take this to the editorial meeting. And, and, and I was like, I don't know why you do that, but all right, sure. They can read it. I guess they can read my master's thesis. And then she goes, and then after that, I would take it to a publicity meeting to see if the publicist, you know, the publicist people think that it could sell. And like, it dawned on me all of a sudden, I finally like put two and two together. Like she was never interested in being my friend. <laughs> She was like thinking of this professionally. And I remember I put the phone down. I said to my sister, they want to publish my book. And my sister said, you don't have a book. And I said, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. And my sister was like, aye, aye, aye. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And that's how my first book came to be. It, it grew out of my master's thesis. So, and then I didn't write for a long time. I, um, I worked as a chaplain and I had my first child. And I got really sick after that, like really, really sick. I had drug-induced psychotic disorder from anesthesia that I was given during an emergency C-section. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I tell everybody this. When people say like, you're a hospice chaplain, you must be an angel. <laughs> and I always say, listen, here's the secret of hospice <laughs> that everybody in hospice knows. The clinicians, the chaplains, the social workers, the nurses, the, the aides, we are getting more out of it than we're putting into it. And it has to be that way, right? There are certain jobs you can, like, gut it out. You can, like, hate your job and just do it, gut it out. But you can't do that with hospice. Like, it will destroy you. I mean, you will burn out in, like, six weeks. You have to be getting more out of it than you're putting into it. Or you burn out. Right. So no one in hospice is an angel. Like, we're doing it because we are getting a lot out of it from the patients and the families. And I did, I did, I do. I get a lot out of being with those patients. I, I really feel like as, as much as I offered to the patients, they offered me more. So you're, you never set out to be a hospice chaplain. No, my training was in hospital chaplaincy. I mean, I was, I was a chaplain, right? I was, a, I went to school to be, you know, I went to, to visiting sure. school and I, and I did an internship for, for chaplaincy, but I worked in a hospital. Um, I had never considered doing hospice. Because even to me, working in the hospital, like hospice seemed like weird. I must admit, in my experience in working with hospice, like chaplains seem to be underutilized. And in my experience, I mean, did you, you found, you found that too? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. Why do you feel that we're, we're underutilizing chaplains and how do we engage chaplains more to be more part of this end of life process? Because believe it or not, this is what I think death is a spiritual experience period period yeah absolutely and that's and that's right that's the whole history of hospice right dame cecily saunders founded hospice modern hospice movement because she had this idea it seems obvious now but it was radical at the time that there there are different types of pain right that there's physical pain and that someone who's dying very well might have physical pain but there's also spiritual pain and emotional pain she very saunders very much understood that death is a spiritual experience and that we cannot simply treat the patient for physical symptoms, for physical pain. She had this concept of total pain, right? That you have to treat all the pain. Um, and, and here's how I've always understood it, that, you know, if, if, 
if someone has broken their hand, you don't put their foot right. in an ice bath, right? You don't, you don't ice their ankle with a broken hand. <laughs> it's not going to help the hand. If you have mm. spiritual pain, all the morphine in the world is not going to help you. It's not going to help you. So why from our founding, which, you know, the modern hospice movement, even in the United States, was an explicitly, explicitly spiritual alternative to the medical model of dying from the beginning in the 1970s. So why have we come so far? Why are chaplains so underutilized? Why, even in hospices today, are Mm -hmm. we not understanding? Nobody talks about total pain anymore, right? People don't usually talk about spiritual pain very much, um, even though it's still there. It is true. (laughs) Why? I mean, someone could write a dissertation on why and how that happened. Um, in In my experience, part of it, I feel like, even comes from the IDG. So the I, for people who don't know what that is, that's the interdisciplinary group meeting. So once a week as a, as a hospice, you meet the nurses, social workers, chaplains, volunteer coordinator, um, the medical director, who's a doctor, um, you all meet to discuss the patients. And really it's kind of, it's basically, um, you're supposed to sort of be talking together about how to care for this patient, but usually what it turns into is the nurse is giving report to a doctor. And that, of course, is what happens in the hospital. Nurses give report to the doctor. And somehow in our IDGs, we have replicated this, that an IDG is now nurses giving report to the doctor, as opposed to the entire team talking together about what's going on in this patient's life and how do we support this patient and that patient's family. Um, so I actually think IDT or IDG is a big problem the way they're set up. I think it's a big problem. Um, I don't think that's the totality of the problem, but I think that reinforces, um, this idea. Part of it, of course, is the training of the nurses and doctors. And even, you know, quite frankly, the chaplains, like we, we're all trained in, for the most part in a hospital. Um, and so we're coming with a hospital mindset, even though we're doing hospice. And it's, I think sometimes easy to fall into those old, those old patterns. I think another big part of it is that um, in some ways, I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes the physical symptoms are easier to treat, Mm. Mm. right? It's easier. It's easier to treat. You have X, try A, B, and C. You have Y, try D, E, and F. Um, Spiritual pain, emotional pain is a little more nebulous. It's harder to quantify you know there's a big um i don't want to use the word debate there's a big conversation in the chaplaincy world hospital chaplaincy hospice chaplain and it's spilling into hospice chaplaincy about trying to show the efficacy of spiritual care in for patients and part of that quite frankly i think is driven by Mm. money by insurance, by how by how hospitals get reimbursed for care, um, that chaplains are sort of feeling this pressure to show that basically we're like we're worth being there. We're we're worth we're worth your time and 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 your your money for us to be there. And how do we show that? Well, we're going to like try to show it with you know empirical studies. But that's it really is. hard. <laughs> that's really hard because by its nature, by its nature, spiritual health and spiritual growth. Um, are in some ways ineffable, right? I mean, to use sort of theological language, right? We talk about God as the transcendent Mm -hmm. other, right? Because, 
you know, the mystics would talk about how everything you, you want to say about the spiritual life, you immediately need to sort of unsay because it's supposed to be ineffable. It's really hard to talk about these things. It's hard to quantify. Um, so you're trying to sort of put a scientific model on a spiritual experience. But you seem, I mean, especially through your book on living, you seem to have this really in-depth relationship. And half the time, if not the majority of the time, you weren't talking about God or stuff like that. You were talking about struggles that they felt okay to talk to you about. Right. You know, when you say people aren't talking about God, I, I would say they were. Okay. I would say that you know, God is a name. It's a, uh, Judaism, I feel like has a better understanding of this, right? right? They're like, we don't even want you to give a name to it because it is unnameable, this experience of transcendence, right? Um, so people might not have used the word God, but the experiences that they were trying to understand, these experiences of overwhelming love, that makes no sense. These experiences of wonder, these experiences of being in the depths of anguish and despair and hopelessness, and suddenly, mysteriously, a sense of calms. Something happens. Somebody visits. They get a letter at just the moment they needed it. They are talking about God. They might not be using that word, that name, but um, they are trying that meaning-making, that task of meaning-making, that's what you're trying to make meaning of. You know what? I think you bring up a very valid point about feeling like it, when we're talking spiritually, you have to name it as Allah, God. It, it, I, I think that's a very interesting point that you bring up. Yeah. And, and I think, I think for, as when I was a young chaplain, I didn't really quite understand that. I thought I was just a really bad chaplain. I just thought, like, when I get better, people are totally going to want to start talking about God. <laughs> and then it never happened. I mean, that's not true. People do use the word God sometimes. And listen, I I love to pray. If patients want to pray, I love to pray with patients. You know, patients want to talk, you know, if patients want to see the Catholic priest, if they want to see the rabbi, like, I am I am going to pull out all the stops to make that happen. Um, if, if patients want to read... Um, the Bible, they want to do whatever they want to do. Like, I would love, 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 love to talk with them about that. But as a chaplain, you, um, you don't get to set the terms of the conversation, right? The patient sets the terms of the conversation. Um, and the patient uses the language they want to use to, ex to talk about whatever spiritual issues are on their mind. Whatever that is, I go where they go, and I use the language they use because that's how they need to come to meaning and understanding. And I have every bit of belief also that, like, the Holy Spirit's going to do the work, right? Like, I'm, I'm a woman of great faith. You know, I don't talk about it very much because that's kind of not the role of a chaplain. I don't talk about my faith. I, I talk about what my patients do. But in my personal life, like, I have great faith. <laughs> I've seen it. I have experienced it in, in, what, in what happened after my son was born. Um, and... And so I have every bit of faith that the Holy Spirit, or whatever word you want to use, is going to do the work, right? The Holy Spirit and the patient are going to do that work together. And I'm simply there as a helpful, helpful, supportive guide. That's it. I, the patient does all the work. How do you keep from projecting your own thoughts onto your patients? Is that part of your training? 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I would say that's the main part of the training. <laughs> I would say that is the training. Is there's very thick boundaries of where you end and the patient begins. Yeah. So uh, boundaries, when people talk about boundaries, um, it's like become sort of like this, this catchword, this, like people like to talk about boundaries, you know, sort of like the self-help <laughs> right. sort of site, you know, yeah, like right. pop, you know, like what I call pop spirituality, right? There's a lot of pop spirituality out there, you know, this sort of self-helpy, um, and that word boundaries is like, I've become a big part of that. Um, and I feel sometimes I worry sometimes I, I worry a lot. I'm actually a worrier by nature. I worry sometimes that there's a terrible misunderstanding of what healthy boundaries actually are. <laughs> there's this sort of this notion that having good, healthy boundaries means that like, I have these big, strong walls to keep you out. And that's not actually what healthy boundaries are at all. That's like the opposite of healthy boundaries. Really, really healthy boundaries means I ke- I'm keeping my, I'm not keeping you out. I'm keeping myself in, right? I am very aware of where I end and you begin. I am very aware of where my story ends and your story begins because the last thing you need is a chaplain or anybody, quite frankly, sort of leaking out into your story. I'm not going to insert myself. I'm not going to leak myself all over someone else's story or life or spiritual path. I, I fully understand that this is between the patient or the patient's family and God, and that I am simply here as a witness. I'm here as a helper, but I'm not here to do the work. I have a, a wonderful friend, Kristen, and she's an Episcopal priest, and she's just so smart. And she has said to me on numerous occasions, you know, when I've been talking about something and I get all worked up and she'll say, Hey, care, listen. And this is again, coming from my faith, you know, I'm, I, my, my faith. She'll say, Jesus Christ saved the world 2000 years ago. You don't need to do it again. It's done. <laughs> the work is done. So stop, right? You don't need to save anything. You have to be open to allowing it to affect you, but there is that still strong boundary of trying to protect project yourself into their story. Right. And, you know, and sometimes I don't succeed, right? Sometimes, some, sometimes I do get, I, I do, I do, I don't have a, a strong, healthy stance on someone, on the patient's story. Sometimes I do get sort of too emotionally involved. But don't you think that's part of being human? Mm, yeah, I think it's part of being human, but I also think it's not good practice professionally. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think it's part of being human, but I also think it's something, you know, you have to work. You have to work to keep that in check. Like that's your job, right? That's, that's your job right. is to understand your role, to understand, you know, to use medical language, you know, <laughs> but your, your scope of practice <laughs> as a chaplain, what is your scope of practice? It's not to save that person. That to me, that's, I don't worry. People have said to me like, don't you worry? Don't you worry if someone is an atheist? And I always say, and, and that tends to happen more here in South Carolina, where people are very worried about other people being saved. By, and by that, they mean going to heaven. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, some people who are not born-again Christians get really upset by that language. They find it um, aggressive and condescending and judgmental, this whole idea you're either saved or you're not saved. Um, but my take on it, having talked to lots of people who do understand salvation, in that way. And it's, and remember, it's a very particular way to understand salvation, right? There's, there's lots of other ways to understand salvation besides needing to have a born again experience. Um, that's a new way to understand salvation. Fairly new ish. 
um, this idea that you have to sort of profess. And there's almost, for a lot of people, there's almost a, a ritual to it that you have to sort of profess, I, you know, I accept um, Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And um, There are other ways to understand salvation. But what I've come to see is that people who really worry about, and nurses will say that to me, they'll say, is this patient saved? Mm. Because we can't do it perfectly. We're, we end up hurting each other, even if we don't mean to. Yeah, that's it's so true. So tell, going back to um, another story out of your book on living, it was the Indian ritual. Um, tell me a little bit about that story. Um, so the patient asked, um, she said that she was a Native American herself and that she asked us um, to find a Native American medicine person to come and help her. Um, so one of the things that we do as chaplains um, is we help people find clergy people. Um, and in this case, this person said she needed to find a medicine, a medicine man or medicine woman um, to do a certain ritual. And so we, we found one. I didn't actually find one. The social worker found one, which was harder to do than you would think. Harder to find someone. Then uh, it took us a long time actually to find someone to come and do this ritual that this patient said they needed. And you, they, you were asked to stay in the room while this was being done. I was. Did yes. something spiritually come over you that happened while you were with this patient during this experience? Yeah. So I mean, I can I I can't speak about the patient's experience, but I can certainly talk about what I experienced. Um, in in that time, um, you know, I didn't understand what was going on. Um, the songs were in a different language, so I didn't, I didn't understand what was being said. It's not my religious tradition. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really understand necessarily what was happening. Um, actually at all, I didn't understand at all what was happening. Um, I really felt like my job at that time was to be what I always was for, tried to be for my patients. I was trying to be present for her. And, and that was a little bit hard because I couldn't, you know, the, the, the medicine woman said, you need to stand in the corner, right? You need to stand in the corner and be out of the way and just be strong. And I said, okay. So, you know, I couldn't be with my patient. I couldn't sit next to her. Um, so what I could do was, you know, like really sort of maintain eye contact, you know, look at her, let her know that I was, I was there and I was present. Um, it was a long ritual. Um, and like I said, I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, and so my, my mind began to wander after a while. Um, and I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't being strong. I wasn't being present. I was not being present. <laughs> I was like, I love your honesty. Yeah, I, was like, I was totally like, and I was hot. It was like really hot. because I was wrapped in a blanket and I'm like sweating really bad. And, um, and you know, I've got two kids and mm. I'm like thinking about Oh my God, this is going on longer than I thought it was going to. And who's going to pick the kids up? And what am I going to make for dinner? And I was supposed to go grocery shopping on the way home. And I was not being present. I was not being present. Um, and I suddenly, as I stood there, had this experience. Um, it felt very physical. Um, a physical experience of fear and anxiety that sort of started up in my calves and kind of worked its way up and out and sort of whooshed over me um, and sort of out the corner of the room. And I'm not sure if that makes sense to people, this idea of 
fear sort of having a direction, <laughs> but it was very directional. Mm. Um, it came in a certain way. It came out. I had a, a physical reaction to this feeling. Um, I started shaking and sweating. My heart was beating a million miles an hour. It took me by surprise because I was literally like making, you know, thinking about dinner. Um, <laughs> and when it sort of came over me, I realized, holy cow, I'm totally not being present for my patient. And I, I sort of went back to just sort of looking at her face and trying to sort of exude love. I, I didn't know what else to do for her. She was very frightened herself, just trying to sort of channel love <laughs> as an energy towards her. And uh, so when I had this sort of physical feeling wash over me, that was my response to it. Um, and then it left. It sort of left out a corner of the room. What do you think it was? Was it her fear or what was your interpretation of that experience when it, when it happened to you? So one of the things you get to learn to do as a chaplain, actually one of the things that's really helpful about having had post of having had a postpartum psychosis, you know, having had this drug induced psychotic disorder, <laughs> which I, mm-hmm. I have not had any symptoms of for, you know, 10 years, I'm not on any medication or anything, but the experience, I remember it. <laughs> you don't forget it. Um, right. One of the helpful things, if there can be anything good that came from it, is the realization, I'm going to start to sound really woo-woo and sort of a little loopy here, but that's okay. (laughs) I have no shame. (laughs) Um, I love your openness. Here it comes. Uh, One of the things you learn, if you've ever had a psychotic break, or that I learned at least, um, is that we have this idea that there are things that are real and things that are not real. And when you're psychotic, you can't tell what's real. That's Mm. the experience of it. And that's a terrifying experience of not being able to discern what is real and what is not real and to know you can't discern it. And um, until I had that experience, I didn't know that I went through the world assessing what is real and what is not real until I couldn't do it anymore. And so, you know, I had drug-induced psychotic disorder for seven months before it was diagnosed and I was put on medication for it. That's a long time to live sort of in that place. Um, Or it feels like a long time for me. There there are people who live much longer in that place, in this world. Um, And you learn to live with, not knowing you learn to not not be comfortable but to be accepting because there was nothing comfortable about it it was a horrible experience it was the worst seven months of my life no doubt full stop Mm -hmm. um so i'm not in any way trying to glamorize it or say it was a good thing or anything i want to do again but i did learn to that it's okay it's okay if you don't know what something is, if it's okay, you, you can survive not knowing what is real and what is not real. You can survive. There was such a fabulous book and what, I mean, humor, but also getting to know some of these patients. Um, I, I, I just feel like that I knew them by the time, the way you write, it's almost giving these patients the voice, their voice and almost a legacy, um, which I think is so, cool because I would have never met these patients unless you wrote this book and some of the lessons and some of the humor that you 
do see, and a lot of people don't talk about this humor at end of life. Um, but you, oh, were, it's totally there. Of I course, to- it's there. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. So you're traveling with your your family. You're you're speaking to clinicians nationally, and maybe even even internationally. So what's next for you? So I know I'm not the best chaplain out there. I know that, um, but I do think. I'm a good writer. I think that's a gift I have been given. And so I think I, I have an ability to articulate some of the things that chaplains do and some of the things that patients experience um, in a way that other people can relate to. And so I feel like I have an obligation to do that. But I also feel like you have a rare point of view when it comes to providing this whole spiritual care to individuals in hospice and palliative care. I I want I want to see you do this because I think it is so needed in this industry. Someone helping clinicians with um, helping them with their own spiritual um, or own grief with what they're going through on a daily basis. Yeah, when I was in Massachusetts, um, my my manager up there said to me, "Hey, we've tried everything to offer you know staff support and." <laughs> you know what hospice nurses are like. They're like the strongest, mostly women, some men, mostly women. They're like the strongest women in the, in, in the world, right? If you say to a, a hospice nurse, I'm here to support you. They're going to like, they're going to look at you like, and run over yeah. you. <laughs> Go ahead and try. You try, you try to support me. Right. <laughs> I see that as a challenge, right? But if you say, listen, I, we're here to do education, right? We're here to do spiritual education so that you can support yourself. Cause that's really what you need. You don't need someone to support you. You need to be able to support yourself. You, and I, and I got it. The chaplain, I believe that I believe I totally the work believe is done. It. Yeah. I believe the work is done between the patient or family member or nurse or social worker or cl- any clinician, you know, CNA. I feel like we never talk about hospice aides enough. We never talk about CNAs enough who are the ones actually going in there every day for four hours, giving someone a bath. I mean, that talk about intimacy. We never talk about CNAs enough um, or respect the work they do enough, quite frankly. Um, but if you can say to any clinician, I'm going to hear the tools you need to support yourself. That's what they need, right? They don't need someone to come in and support them. They need the tools to support themselves. They need, and chaplains have them. Like we can teach you, we can teach you those tools. We can, because it's between you and the Holy Spirit. We can teach you those. Um, but the, again, chaplains are totally underutilized. I do. And because we, yeah. we have not done a good job explaining to people what we can teach you. I have people who really found it helpful. <laughs> I think that that is a number one issue of burnout at end of life is that it's all, and I think that's with, with all of healthcare, it's productivity now, it's documentation, it's, and it's not, not patient centered. It's, it, and we need, I hate that word patient centered. It's like, how about patient inclusion? Um, how about, how do we include them in this IDT? Um, how do we get families involved with these conversations and connect with, with really, truly the, the whole circle of care? They need better tools to support themselves. You know, they're doing the best they can. They're doing miraculous. And so are doctors, miraculous, amazing things, really, really hard job, literally a job about life and death. Like, Mm. right. Is there any, is there any higher stakes? life and death and they need really great tools to be able to perform at their best in this really miraculous work they do and i feel i feel like i feel like chaplains have those tools we can give you those tools but we're so darn quiet i am happy to go out there as a chaplain 
and teach you all these good tools that a lot of chaplains are kind of more quiet and they're kind of like, ah, I don't, you know, I'm going to be with the patients. I'm happy to go out and teach those tools. So if anybody's listening, um, how do they get in touch with you to possibly do this? I have a website. I guess they, they could send me an email. They could send me an email. It's just carryegan.com. But there's there's a link on there that says you can send me a message. If you're out there and you are having difficulties or you're seeing your all clinical staff, um, and, and you know we can include administrative staff in that as well, but really it's the clinical people who are facing these patients in the eyes. If you are interested in talking to Carrie about creating a program, that would be awesome. I wasn't expecting this. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, for the last, um, I would say five years, as our ho- as the hospice organization that I work for grew so vastly, and it became about census and how many referrals did we get, and yeah. the the clinicians just were overwhelmed yeah. with the growth. Yeah. And if we if we were growing faster than we could hire, guess what? They had huge caseloads. Yeah. Um, and and we've and and that's just not the nurse; it's the entire team. Because it is a team approach. Um, and we've got to do better about taking care of our clinicians when it does come to end of life for sure. But I, I really do appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for interviewing me. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. <laughs>